welcome to the Forest Lakes District EFCA podcast. The FLD's focus is to connect, equip, and multiply leaders in fulfillment of our vision to glorify God by multiplying transformational churches among all people. In today's podcast, we hear from Dr. Matthew Epinetti on navigating taking life, making life, and faking life in our med tech world. This session was recorded at the FLD Spring Leaders Conference in 2022. At some point. <laughs> How to live is a question that no one can escape, right? We all make decisions about what we're going to do, what we're not going to do, um, and, and we think through the reasons why. Our world is uh, medically advanced, it's technologically sophisticated, it's scientifically awe-inspiring. Did, did anyone see, I made a, uh, like, hype video? I was, I was asked to make a hype video. It was not my idea to do anything called a hype video. Did anyone see that? Okay. Well, good. It's because I'm kind of repeating. <laughs> um, and so questions of bioethics involve what we should and should not pursue when it comes to matters of life and health. And those are, I mean, that's very broad. I get it. That's a very broad definition. Uh, the opening slide there said, uh, Taking life, making life, and faking life. So those are three kind of key areas where we work in bioethics. So taking life, these are age-old problems, euthanasia, abortion, uh, assisted suicide. But we are seeing new kind of challenges on that front, and we'll talk about some of those today. Uh, making life, reproductive technologies is a field that's grown and advanced uh, really within the last 40 years. And there's now a whole array of options for forming a family, for having children. Uh, for making life, and we, again, we see the, the challenges there increasing. Uh, and then faking life, we'll, take a, we'll talk a little bit about faking life today, but not a whole lot. Um, this is uh, the last time I gave this presentation, I had three hours, <laughs> so forewarned is forearmed. Uh, I started with 72 slides, uh, which would be more than one slide a minute, <laughs> so I trimmed it back. Um, all that to say, it is gonna be a little bit of drinking from a fire hose. It is gonna be a little bit of, I wish he had gone deeper into, yeah, me too. <laughs> um, but I'll talk at the end about some opportunities where you can dig in uh, a good bit deeper. <clears throat> so uh, this is probably familiar from uh, philosophy, ethics classes. Uh, some ethical systems focus on the action. Is this the right kind of thing to do? Uh, is telling a lie right or wrong? So you know, generally, it's wrong. Some focus on the results. Well, if I tell a lie in this situation, uh, it's going to really make things okay uh, or uh, not worse. And then some focus on the actor. Um, what would a person of character do in this situation? And I don't know that we all break down our decisions uh, quite that way or that we really contemplate. Now, what, am I focusing on the actor here or the action or the result? Um, I think we kind of intuitively combine those, move back and forth between those, uh, sort of ad hoc. Uh, another very um, influential system of ethics when it comes to bioethics or medical ethics is the, are the principles of biomedical ethics. And these have been kind of around formally for about 40, 45 years. Uh, you see them there, autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. And one of the reasons that I highlight this is because if you're ever in a situation where a hospital ethics committee is involved, this, this is the framework that they'll officially be working out of. Uh, and what we see ultimately is that autonomy tends to be the trump card. Well, this is what the patient wants, this is what the patient desires. As long as it isn't illegal or, or clearly murderous, um, it's generally going to be, be pushed ahead. 
Beneficence, non-maleficence uh, are sort of sides of a coin. You want to do things for the patient that benefit the patient. Um, you want to do things for the patient that don't harm the patient. So every episode of House, right? This is, this is the key conflict is between beneficence and non-maleficence. And then items of justice. Uh, typically those come up with organ transplantation. How do we allocate organs? Uh, who's next on the transplant list? Uh, but you know, we saw that during COVID with uh, designating ICU beds, designating ventilators, things like that. Um, what are just and equitable and fair ways to distribute those things? Um, as I said, I think we all kind of hop back and forth or we use an amalgamation of approaches. Um, and I want to suggest an approach that does just that. It's an approach that looks at virtue and character. What, what would a person of character do? Um, what does it look like to be a person of virtue? Uh, and then it also attends to principles and rules. The person of virtue is the one who's going to seek out rules, who's going to seek to establish principles for decision-making. And then finally, it also pays attention to consequences. Uh, we don't just go willy-nilly doing things and not paying attention to how they work out. Now, of course, this is entitled Biblical Ethics and Bioethics. And so what I want to emphasize is that virtue and character is centered on God, uh, becoming Christ-like, uh, being obedient to the person and the work of God. And then principles and rules that are formed by Scripture. And I, I haven't quite come up with the right wording here because formed isn't quite strong enough. Like infused by Scripture um, and by the community of Christians. So we, we look to tradition as well. Um, and I'll talk some about moral exemplars, uh, which is something that we see quite clearly in Scripture. And then finally, when it comes to evaluating consequences, when it comes to thinking about utility, that we do so with Christ-like love. We're not just trying to add up happiness or trying to add up ease um, or wish fulfillment. So again, virtue and character, uh, it's centered on God. It's focused on God. This is our primary point of reference. This is the way in which we go about starting any, anything. Uh, it acknowledges that we as human beings are inadequate. We do not possess all that we have, all that we need to make the decisions that we need to to face the dilemmas that are going to come before us in life. And it recognizes that God is abundantly able to uh, provide us with what we need. Again, the principles and rules, they're formed, they're informed, they're shaped, they're infused with scripture. And of course, scripture lays out for us all kinds of things. These realities that are mentioned on the slide here, uh, we live in a world that God created. But it's a fallen world. But this isn't the ultimate world. And so these are realities that shape our, our ethical posture in general and specifically when it comes to issues of bioethics. Then there are explicit commands in the Bible. Thou shalt not kill, right? That's an explicit command. Uh, and then we see moral exemplars. And a lot of times what we learn from a moral exemplar is what not to do, right? So the example of David and Bathsheba. I mean, that's, that's a moral exemplar of what not to do. Uh, at least initially, repentance, that's the thing we do want to follow, <laughs> Uh, and then evaluated with Christ-like love. So this does pay attention to consequences, uh, but it also pays attention to motivation. Why are we doing the things that we're doing? What is it that we're really seeking to, uh, what's the outcome that we're really seeking? So let's begin by turning to taking life. So there are three kind of key cases. There's a fourth one I could have added in here, um, but the details vary only really in one significant way. Uh, you have three women, all in their 20s, which I think is notable. Uh, Karen Ann Quimley was in New Jersey. 
she was injured, I believe, in a car accident. Um, uh, sorry, no, she came home from a party and passed out. So this is, I mean, you know, young women in their 20s. Um, and she ended up on a ventilator. Her father went to court to have the ventilator removed, uh, and the Supreme Court of New Jersey ruled that a ventilator is extraordinary care rather than ordinary care. So this is an important kind of consideration when it comes to end-of-life issues, is the care that we're giving, a ventilator, a feeding tube, uh, whatever it is, dialysis, is that ordinary care or, ex or extraordinary care? And different people will come to different conclusions on those. Uh, interestingly, they removed the ventilator and she lived for nine more years. Uh, the staff at the nursing home where she was living uh, managed to wean her off of it in such a way. She ultimately died of pneumonia. Uh, Nancy Cruzan in Missouri, she was 25 years old. She uh, was pronounced dead following a car accident. Um, after four years, her family gave up hope that she would recover and sought to have a feeding tube removed. And the judge said that absent any evidence that she would not want to be sustained on a feeding tube, they had to leave it in place. The family was eventually able to come up with uh, some, some conversations that she had had uh, where she had said she didn't want to be sustained uh, artificially, which that's another kind of dangerous term there. Um, and the, uh, the feeding tube was removed and she died in uh, 1990, so she did live for seven years there. And then Terry Schiavo, that case is um, uh, much more familiar to us, I think. Um, she passed out in 1990, was uh, declared in a persist persistent vegetative state. Eventually her husband had her uh, removed from all life-sustaining measures and she died. Um, so the first two cases, ordinary versus extraordinary, this is a key kind of uh, uh, factor in decisions. The second case, advanced directives making your wishes known. The third case, it's not clear to me what sort of good has come out of that other than perhaps to raise our awareness of things like this. Uh, the other case that could have been added is uh, a young man, Dax Cower. He was in his uh, 20s also, um, injured. I used to say injured in an oil field accident, and that's sort of true. He was driving along, and there was a gas leak uh, in the field, and it blew up his truck. So he was burned very horribly uh, and kept insisting that he wanted, wanted to die, wanted to be able to commit assisted suicide, uh, and that was not allowed. In fact, he only died just a couple of years ago. Uh, I want to say he was in his late 60s or early 70s. Um, and at some point reached the conclusion that he was glad that he was alive, but he really wished that he had not had to suffer through the recovery from the, the burns. But it is interesting to me that all of these cases, all four of those, involve people in their 20s. We just don't think about end-of-life issues coming up for people in their 20s. Taking life euthanasia uh, is probably maybe the first thing that comes to mind. Um, euthanasia literally meaning a good death. And I think we all probably have ideas about what a good death would be. It might be the same idea. Some of us want a long and slow process where we get to say goodbye to everyone. Others of us want to fall asleep and not wake up. That could be a good death for one person, not for another. But euthanasia is the intentional taking of another life. And it has a lot of different dimensions, active or passive, and voluntary or non-voluntary or involuntary. It just means did the person want to be euthanized? Were they directly euthanized? Were they indirectly euthanized? Uh, this is not a huge concern in the United States. It's a huge concern in parts of Europe. Uh, it's increasingly a concern in Canada. Uh, but what we're seeing is, of course, physician-assisted suicide. 
is legal in a number of states here in the US, uh, and it's now legal in Canada. And in Canada, that's where it kind of crosses over into euthanasia, because you can actually request your request for what they call medical aid in dying. And so this is the sort of latest euphemism, uh, medical aid in dying. So you can actually request in Canada that the physician come in and actually inject you uh, to make you dead. Uh, so that would be euthanasia. Rather than in the United States where uh, a physician prescribes something that you then have to take on your own. Uh, the Economist, uh, a very, I think, influential weekly news magazine. Uh, they had an editorial back in November, the welcome spread of assisted dying. So this is, I highlight this only because this is the culture that we live in. Um, I spoke at the EFCA conference back in the fall, and the, the theme was in but not of the world. This is of the world. The world sees this as welcome, the spread of assisted dying. Now, uh, assisted dying differs from withholding and withdrawing treatment. There are times when it is perfectly acceptable to withdraw or to refuse treatment or to withhold treatment. And that's not euthanasia necessarily. It can be if the intent is to end the life, but often the intent is simply to let the disease run its course. So what's the intention? This is a key factor in withdrawing and withholding treatment. Uh, what's the cause of death? Is it something that was done directly or was it the underlying disease process? Uh, and this is one of the big disputes that we have with most of the assisted suicide bills is that in spite of the fact that a person took a poison to die, a prescribed poison, uh, the underlying cause of death is listed as the disease. Uh, and that's, that's just false. Um, but the law is now calling for the falsification of medical records. Um, refusing treatment can sometimes feel different than withdrawing treatment. If someone's on a ventilator, it's easy to see the ventilator as part of the person and to just psychologically be, uh, feel more constrained about withdrawing that than never starting it. But ethically, there's no, there's no difference. Oftentimes, it's actually good to start it, give it a chance, see if the ventilator or the feeding tube leads to any benefit, uh, give it a little bit of time, and if it's not beneficial, if there's no healing, uh, then it can be withdrawn. Uh, and then finally, a key aspect is to determine the understanding of the patient if they're in a situation where they, they can understand. And one of the best ways to do that is to have the patient describe back to you what they want done, what they understand is going on. Uh, so rather than a yes, no, you explain it, or the doctors explain it, and they say, do you understand? And they say, yes. Well, it's a little bit better to actually have them say, well, explain it back to me. And oftentimes you'll find that there's some difference, that they're skipping over something, or they're adding something in. Uh, and so that's a very key part of really understanding if people want with treatment withdrawn, or if they're refusing treatment. What are the reasons that they're refusing treatment? Sometimes it's a psychological reason. Uh, it's, you know, they're worried about finances. It's something that can, that can be dealt with uh, rather than uh, they're actually finding the treatments so burdensome that they simply don't want to continue them. At the end of life, what a patient needs is pain management. This is uh, one of the things that the assisted suicide movement really gloms onto is that they're afraid people are gonna suffer, be in intractable pain. I'm not saying that never happens, but our ability to manage pain has gotten much, much better over the past 20, 30 years. 
Um, the hospice movement is almost 50 years old now, um, and palliative care has really grown as a field. Um, I, I'm certain there are still patients for whom uh, pain cannot be controlled, but it is a minority of patients. This is not the thing that most people are actually facing at the end of their life. Uh, secondly, they need suffering management, and that's different than pain management. You can be in no pain at all, but be suffering greatly. Uh, and sometimes you can be in a great deal of pain and not really find it suffering. So there are two different aspects there, both of which need to be addressed. They need to feel well supported. They need family. They need friends. They need church and community to come around them. Um, you know, don't let this burden fall entirely on the family if you can help it. Um, as churches, we need to come around families and help them at these difficult times. And the people need some assurance of control. Um, to whatever degree they're able to understand and communicate, they need to be communicated with. Uh, they need to be understood. They need to be listened to. So turning back to our biblical approach to end of life, uh, again, character that's centered on God. So this is a lifelong process of development, of growth. It's not something that you just suddenly snap into uh, and you're, you have character. So it's this ongoing process. I mean, this is what you're doing as, as church leaders, is helping to form people into uh, the image of Christ. Uh, and then principles that are informed by Scripture. And again, I talked some about these principles come out of the realities that we see revealed in Scripture. Death is inevitable. We are all going to die. We're all mortal. Uh, but it is a defeated enemy. Uh, so we don't have to fear death. Uh, we don't have to see death as something that we have to avoid at all costs, that we have to uh, be vitalist and just hold on to this life with all that we have. Uh, there, there can be a time and a place to say, I I've had enough of the treatment, I've had enough of this disease, and I really just want for it to, to run its course, make me comfortable, stay with me, uh, whatever it is that people want. Um, and human beings are not simply animals. This is, again, an argument that... Uh, Jack Kevorkian's lawyer used to make all the time, well, we would put an animal out of its misery. But human beings aren't animals. They're not, we're not to be put out of our misery. We're to be accompanied in our suffering. Uh, and that's the, the, the community of God's people, uh, I think, are most well-positioned often to accompany people in their suffering. And then finally, the consequences evaluated with Christ-like love. Again, what's the intention here? Are we trying to kill the person, or are we just trying to let the disease run its course? Um, and what's the patient's engagement in this? Is this, or is this something we're simply doing to the patient, or is this something that we're accompanying the patient through? Uh, I mentioned advanced directives before. Uh, the living will is probably the most well-known of advanced directives. Uh, there's some flaws with living wills because you, you're, you're really trying to anticipate what's going to happen and speak to what could happen. Uh, much better is the durable power of attorney for healthcare. This is where you designate one or two people to be the ones who will speak for you, ideally. And I know we don't live in an ideal world, but ideally you would have some conversation with these, this person or persons uh, that talks about <coughs> I, I want to be sustained uh, no matter what. I don't want to be hooked up to a machine at all, somewhere in between. Um, these are important conversations. There can be difficult conversations, uh, but they're very important. There's a document, uh, so I have cbhd.org, that's our website. Uh, we have an advanced directive document there. Sorry, yes, a, a durable power of attorney for healthcare document there. Uh, it comes with some instructions that helps you walk through some of the decisions that you want to think about, some of the things you want to talk about with your designated person. 
there's also a form called uh, the five wishes. Uh, a lot of doctors have these in their offices. Uh, and it's, a very, it's actually a very good thing. It talks about what are the things that you want. Um, do I want people to talk to me if I'm unconscious? Or do I want to be left alone? How much do I want to know? I mean, some people don't want to know anything. You know, you know, particularly, this can be very cultural in some instances where a, a son or a daughter is designated or a, a spouse or even an uncle is designated to be the one that makes the decisions. And you know, that's fine. If that's what you want to do, hand that over to somebody. You just need to make that known. Um, do I want people to sit with me? Or do I not want people to sit with me? Um, so that's a, it's a good thing that gets your mind going, gets you thinking about uh, what are these key items that I need to consider as I move into this. Uh, finally, on taking life, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention something about abortion. Uh, Texas, as you know, has passed a very restrictive abortion law, and much to my surprise, and I'm not an attorney, so I guess I don't deserve to be surprised. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, it's sustained. It's, it's still in effect. This is an article in the Washington Post. If you, if you Google the phrase, a maternity ranch is born, it'll pull up the article. It's quite good. It's a, it's a woman. It all started with a, with a woman who um, just had this vision of a ranch where they could welcome young women in who were facing a crisis pregnancy. They could provide for their real needs, food, shelter, uh, things that the baby would need, uh, and also in a no-pressure kind of way, or at least a low-pressure kind of way, trying to introduce them to the gospel. Uh, and she ended up building a coalition among several churches in, uh, I think it's in the Dallas area. They bought a ranch. They're building these different uh, little cabins where women can come and stay, have their babies, have everything they need provided for them. And I think even for the year after the baby is born, if the woman is, uh, if the man stays with the woman, which I mean, that's a whole other talk. <laughs> um, the man and woman can live there together and both be provided for. Um, so really trying to address like, okay, if we're gonna live in a society where this is much more restricted, uh, then what are we gonna do for women who need our help? It's a, it's a really uh, great article. So turning now to making life. There are at least 38 ways to make a baby. Uh, and I'm not going to go through them all, <clears throat> or even many of them. <laughs> uh, this comes to us from Proverbs, and I've just always found this verse fascinating. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. And just look at the things that are set in parallel here. Sheol, so the grave, we just can't dig enough graves. I mean, it's every day, every hour, every minute, somebody's done going in the grave. The barren womb right there in the middle. The land that's never satisfied with water. You ever visited the desert? But even here, you know, the rivers and lakes fill up, then they drain out, and we can go from flood to drought in no time at all, it seems like. And then finally, the fire that never says enough. And of course, we have the wildfires out west. Uh, there was just recently, down in Chicago, a, a church that caught on fire on Easter weekend. They were doing some roofing work, and it caught the church on fire. A uh, very old church. And so the way that since it burned from the top down, it so destabilized the walls that the fire department couldn't get in there. And so basically for a week, the fire department was going back every day to keep putting the fire out because it would rekindle, re-spark, because there was just enough stuff in there to keep going. So you just think about these images all placed alongside one another and the barren loom right there in the middle. So there's a deep ache. Infertility brings a deep ache, a deep pain. And I'm sure that, that many of you have had couples in your 
church who've experienced infertility, dealt with infertility. Uh, it affects about one in six couples. So, you know, look around, do the math. Um, lots of people are going through it. And out of this deep ache, out of this deep heartbreak, uh, have come these reproductive technologies, these different ways of making life. Uh, very briefly, this is just a quick slide. Um, infertility brings a whole lot of losses. Um, I think we can all agree there are many, many things that we lose in the experience of infertility. Uh, adoption solves one, maybe two, maybe one and a half of these. Uh, number six, the opportunity to parent a new generation. So adoption addresses that. And emotional expectations. So it, it presents new emotional expectations. So again, just to sort of highlight the, the deep pain uh, that comes from infertility. Uh, so these are just kind of broad classifications in some way. Um, and this is a little bit of the order in which things work when you go for infertility treatment. So you go to the doctor, you're not, you're not getting pregnant. So first you're gonna try fertility drugs. Um, usually those are fairly mild, just trying to work on the timing of ovulation. Um, sometimes sperm motility, those sorts of things. Uh, if that doesn't work, sometimes they'll do artificial insemination depending on where the issue lies. What we find is that about half of the time, well, I, more like 40% of the time, it's a male factor. About 40% of the time, it's female factor. About 10% of the time, it's some combination. These two people, they just don't work together. Uh, and then about 10% of the time, no idea. Can't tell you. Everything seems to look right, work right. Just doesn't work. Uh, so depending on where the problem lies, sometimes they'll use artificial insemination. And then very quickly, you end up at, at uh, IVF, in vitro fertilization. Uh, my experience in talking with pastors is they often find out We've done IVF, would you pray for us? So no kind of moral consideration before they get to that point. Or, uh, someone was just telling me this the other day, a couple came to them and said, we've done IVF, we're pregnant with three, they're telling us we need to reduce. Pastor had no idea they were having infertility problems. The cart has gotten a little bit before the horse. Um, and that, that it, it can happen very quickly because these aren't presented as options, they're presented as steps. Um, and so the medical establishment is not doing this necessary. It's very rare that this happens in a way where they're like, well, what you want to think about is if you want to do this. They just say, this is what we're doing next. Uh, and then it can move on from there uh, with donor eggs and sperm, uh, surrogacy, um, and increasingly we're seeing transnational surrogacy. It, it seems to rise to the front. <laughs> Every time there's a national, an international crisis, so the uh, earthquake in Nepal left a lot of uh, pregnant surrogate women uh, in the hospital that had been destroyed by an earthquake. Many commissioning parents flew in, took the babies, left the women there. Uh, and we're seeing the same thing in Ukraine. There's a lot of uh, surrogacy in Ukraine. Uh, so the question is, are those women able to get out of Ukraine to meet up with the commissioning parents? Are the women left to raise the children? Uh, what's going to happen, and that's just scratching the surface of the problems with surrogacy. Uh, and then embryo adoption, so a lot of times what happens is couples, you know, they go in for IVF, they end up with, you know, 10 eggs, leaves them six embryos, they plant two, have twins, they plant another one, have another kid, they still have three embryos, they have three children, one set of twins, they don't want three more children, they don't want one more children, but they have three more embryos. So there's a, there are several organizations now. Snowflake was kind of one of the first down in uh, Tennessee. Um, so it's, a, it's another way in which people 
uh, address infertility. At least with embryo adoption, people have, women can have the experience of the pregnancy and birth, those, uh, those experiences. Um, some of these are not all that fraught. Some of them are very fraught. Um, so turning to scripture, a theology of infertility, uh, it's undeniable that children are prominent in scripture. Uh, scripture talks about being fruitful and multiplying. It talks about a man having a quiver full. Uh, scripture teaches us that children are a blessing. Children are a gift. Uh, but it also teaches us that it's God who opens and shuts the womb. Of course, the, uh, the account of, um, of Hannah in 1 Samuel. Um, there are actually, I believe, seven instances of infertility in the Bible, which is kind of interesting. So again, this isn't a new problem. We're just seeing new issues arise with it. Uh, and then prayer is an appropriate response. I mean, definitely we see that with Hannah and her account. Uh, it's not necessarily the only response, but it is certainly the place to begin our response. So when it comes to thinking about infertility, when it comes to thinking about reproductive technologies, I just want to suggest some practical issues that you can be thinking through uh, as, you're, as you're teaching, as you're preaching, uh, think about ways in which uh, these are things that you might address. So the moral status of human embryos. I think, I think we are probably all largely on the same page that human embryos are human beings. Uh, this idea of separating the person from the human being, so uh, the two sides to that, there are there is the idea in our culture of the non-person human, and then increasingly we're starting to see the non-human person, so uh, like an artificial intelligence, say, uh, or an android being granted person status. Uh, but if we believe that human embryos are human beings, just like you and I are, I think that has implications for the ways in which we think about infertility treatments. Uh, cryopreservation, freezing embryos, uh, if, again, if embryos are human beings like you and I are, should we be freezing? Uh, at least 25% do not survive the freezing and thawing process, just right off the top. Uh, embryo transfer, how many embryos should someone transfer at a time? If they're going to go through IVF, um, if you have three, four, and all of them implant uh, in a pregnancy of four, there will be a lot of pressure to selectively reduce, to abort one or two of the embryos. And then the one flesh nature of the sexual union, and how, what role does that play in our thinking about sexuality, uh, about reproduction, about contraception? Um, I, don't, I don't feel like we as Protestants necessarily give this as much thought uh, as, as perhaps we should, and definitely uh, not as much as we should. Uh, so practical tips, be informed, and I, at the end I will have a slide about how you can be much more well-informed. Uh, be sensitive and be supportive. Um, I haven't talked really at all about one of the pieces of infertility that often happens is pregnancy loss, uh, either stillbirth or miscarriage. Uh, every, everybody has people in their church who've had a stillbirth or a miscarriage. I guarantee it. You don't know about it because nobody ever talks about it. <laughs> well, my wife had a miscarriage, and I couldn't believe, like, 60% of the women in our church had a miscarriage. No idea. So nobody ever talks about it. But it is incredibly difficult to go through, and it comes up every year. Every year, you remember on that date. And so be sensitive to those dates. Uh, check in with people. Um, you don't even have to name it, but just, hey, how are you doing today? I know this is a difficult time. Uh, we do that with death of parents. We do that with death of spouse. Uh, it's, it's, it's much the same 
uh, in terms of emotional toil. Um, so look for ways to be supportive. Look for ways to be sensitive. All right, so taking life and making I told you we weren't going to get very deep. Uh, faking life, or AI, robots, and cyborgs. Oh, my. So artificial intelligence, um, a quick and dirty definition. This is uh, Jason Thacker's The Age of AI, which is a very good book. Uh, Thacker is, I think he's Southern Baptist, uh, but he does a lot of thinking about uh, these kinds of artificial intelligence technologies. So it's non-biological intelligence. I mean, that's, that's kind of the key thing. It's, uh, it's computer-based intelligence. Uh, and it has implications for big data. Uh, increasingly, big data is a thing in our world, just giant record sets of information. Uh, I think the last time I read that um, most of these really sophisticated artificial intelligences, if you give them about a dozen data points, uh, demographic data points, so uh, age, race, education, zip code, you get about a dozen of those, they can figure out who you are. They, they can really nail exactly who you are. Uh, and of course, here in Madison, the home of giant data, right? Epic, the medical record system. Um, they know a lot about me, probably a lot about a lot of you too. Um, and there is a drive to use big data, to use this kind of artificial intelligence to examine that uh, and, and make decisions about it. Uh, we're increasingly seeing uh, artificial intelligence and employment in kind of two areas. The first time I gave this talk, it was to the Christian Legal Society. Artificial intelligence is on the rise in the legal industry uh, because things like uh, evaluating contracts is very straightforward. Either it follows contract law or it doesn't. And artificial intelligence is very good at looking through that. Um, we're seeing artificial intelligence in the medical field. So there's an increasing drive to have artificial intelligence at least do the first review of things like x-rays, mammograms, uh, those sorts of things. Because again, they're very, they're very good at flagging things. However, one of the problems is a lot of those data sets are very skewed. And so I was reading something the other day where uh, they were trying to train the AI to look for something in children. But what they were doing was they only had sick data for children. So they were just throwing in healthy adults. Well, all the AI learned from that was how to identify children. It didn't really learn how to identify the problem. Um, so that's a real issue with AI is what kind of bias even accidentally gets put into it. Uh, and then the other way AI shows up in employment is in employment screening. So if you're applying for a job with a big company and you're sending in a resume or you're filling out their online form, it's going to get scanned by an AI long before a human ever sees it. Uh, and then war fighting. Uh, thankfully, we have not seen a lot of autonomous weapons in the Ukraine war, but that's a real threat. Uh, and I, it's very worrisome when a machine is making life and death decisions uh, in the moment, on the fly, and there's definitely uh, a strong drive to do that. Um, these are a bunch of terms you've probably heard, and I just want to suggest that this is a continuum. So bionic, uh, there's a few of us in here old enough to remember the bionic man. <laughs> Cyborg goes a little bit further than that, where the human and the machine are infused, and the idea here is uh, that the cyborg makes the, the human being uh, more than human, uh, more able than human. Uh, if you want to see some interesting videos, uh, Google Hugh Her, H-U-G-H-E-R-R. He's an MIT scientist uh, and a rock climber. Uh, he lost both of his legs around his knees when he was younger, and I think in a climbing accident. And so uh, he's got some really sophisticated um, 
artificial limbs. Really sophisticated. Uh, then robots, and then androids. So an android, the difference there is that the android looks human, uh, mimics human. Sophia is a fairly well-known uh, robot. She, she has been granted citizenship in Saudi Arabia, which is interesting on a number of levels. Uh, you wouldn't think of Saudi Arabia as extending much of anything to women, necessarily. Uh, but this is a robot that presents as female. Um, there's some interesting videos about Sophia out there. Uh, it's a parlor trick, though. Um, if you watch those videos, just realize it's a parlor trick. Um, uh, and then the other one is um, Boston Dynamics. And you've probably seen these. They have the, the little robots that look like dogs. They have robots that do parkour. Again, it's a parlor trick. Um, I showed a video when I spoke to the Legal Society of these two robots, and they're doing this parkour thing. But it's all, it's all pre-programmed. It's not like they're running from here to there and figuring it out as they go. It's, it's all pre-programmed. But that's the direction they're going, where they could run from here to there and figure it all out on their own. Uh, when it comes to faking life, Walter Isaacson writes in the code breaker of three modern revolutions. The physics revolution, I mean, probably the biggest uh, thing that that changed was the nuclear weapons, uh, but also enabled space travel. Um, the digital revolution, I mean, our lives are completely different because of computers. There's just no two ways about it. And now we're on the cusp of what he calls the life science revolution. It will alter our lives in much the same way that the digital revolution did. And he says that figuring out if and when to edit our genes will be one of the most consequential questions of the 21st century. Uh, and this gene editing has great promise and great peril. So they're already doing some really great experiments with uh, gene editing and sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease is an extremely painful condition. Uh, and there's no known cure for it. People just have to live with a very, very painful condition. But they're actually going in and doing some genetic edits that, um, that just stop it in its tracks so that their, their blood cells form properly uh, and they're relieved of it. Uh, but there are also moves to genetically modify embryos, even to genetically modify sperm and eggs so that you are um, creating a new person with a radically altered or maybe not so radically, but an altered genome. Uh, there's a scientist who just got out of prison in China. And if you go to prison in China for science, you know you've really screwed up. <laughs> uh, Dr. He, uh, who claims to have genetically engineered, uh, I believe, two children to be uh, immune to uh, HIV AIDS. Um, I, the evidence on that is kind of sparse. I mean, it's China. Um, but that's the direction people are wanting to go. Let's, and, and this, the problem with that is it makes a change for all the generations that follow. So the sickle cell example that I gave, that's just going to affect that person, not any of their offspring. But making a genetic change to an embryo, an early embryo, or to sperm and egg, then introduces that change into the whole of the human species over time. An important distinction when it comes to talking about and thinking about faking life is this distinction between therapy and enhancement. So normally when you and I go to the doctor, we're looking for a therapy, a therapeutic result some sort of restoration to a quote-unquote normal state. Now, normal is a much disputed category, and I don't want to get into that. But, you know, we break a leg, we want it to heal so that we can get back to doing the things that we used to do, that kind of thing. You have migraines, you want some relief from the migraines so that you can go about your life as you ordinarily would. On the other hand, enhancement is this attempt to alter, uh, to sort of rev up, to become more than human, human plus. Oh, there's actually an organization called Humanity Plus. Um, so instead of being uh, as strong as you used to be, being way stronger than anybody. 
Uh, Performance-enhancing drugs, I think, are the sort of most obvious example of this. We as a society have largely decided that those are beyond the pale, and we're not going to be accepting of it. But it comes to us in this other scientific guise. Um, I mentioned genetic editing. There is a, there's a genetic component to our uh, body fat to body muscle ratio. You may recall there were pictures of a child born in Germany back about 2005 with this sort of genetics a little bit off, and it was a little baby Arnold Schwarzenegger. So it had very low body fat, particularly for a baby, and very high muscle mass, particularly for a baby. Uh, that's a genetic thing, and so there are people who want to do that, uh, be more muscular. Transhumanism is the sort of most extreme form of this. I mentioned there's an organization called Humanity Plus. This is their definition of transhumanism. And the point here is what they want to do is uh, make, humans, make, make humans a different species. So this idea of the transhuman, what they want to become is post-human. So whatever it is, if you look at an evolutionary scale, whatever's next after human, the post-human, they're all into that. So they call themselves transhumans. We're making the transition from human to whatever post-human is going to be. It might be a human and a robot sort of hybrid, some sort of uh, brain-computer interface. This is Elon Musk's Neuralink. Uh, and Elon Musk is a dude who gets stuff done. Apparently today he's buying Twitter, uh, if you can believe the internet. <laughs> um, so, uh, and he's not the only one with that, well, he's the only one with that kind of money, you know, full stop. But Jeff Bezos is on board with this kind of stuff. I mean, this is big money here. Uh, Google uh, has a Singularity Institute, which is a whole other transhuman thing. Um, it's big money chasing this dream of being more human than, than human. Uh, extended life, uh, exploring other planets. Um, these, are the, these are the kind of things that they're after, and it's the kind of money that's going into it. Uh, I gave a chapel sermon on transhumanism, if you can believe that. You can look it up. It's on YouTube. Uh, and this was the text that, that I chose, or the text that was given to me. I don't, I, you know, I don't know. I don't feel like I have the full responsibility for having chosen this. But I, I just love this verse because look in verse 21. Well, verse 20, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, he's the one who will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. So it's a human, transhumanism is a very much a human engineered, human pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of thing. But scripture promises us that it's, it's Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly bodies. And the phrase lowly bodies, it's literally the bodies of our humiliation. And when we think about aging, when we think about being sick, I mean, parts of that are really humiliating, right? Like I know someone who, when they fall asleep, they lose all bladder and bowel controls. So every time they wake up, someone has to clean them up like a baby. I mean, that's humiliating. It's humiliating. There's no other word for it. But we're promised in Scripture that Jesus Christ himself will transform our humiliating bodies. So, as church leaders, as pastors, you're probably going to be involved in some of these discussions at some point or another. So I just want to give you a few practical tips uh, that, that maybe will be helpful to you. You know, gather the facts. What's really going on here? Sometimes that can be really clarifying. Um, the person has had a stroke. They've had some sort of catastrophic injury. They've had a serious heart attack. You know, what's really going on here? Uh, and then what are the ethical issues? Is this a life and death issue? Is this a comfort issue? Is this a personal preference issue? Uh, what's really at stake here? And then what are the norms and principles that bear? Is, this a, is, a, is the norm a, against taking life? Is this a norm against showing compassion? Is it a norm against um, uh, forming families? You know, what's, what's, what has bearing? And then list the alternatives. Well, we could, we could place a feeding tube and try it out. We could refuse a feeding tube. 
Uh, same with ventilator. Um, and then compare the alternatives to the norms, assess the consequences, and then ultimately, this is one of the things that, uh, you know, is a double-edged sword about bioethics. You have to make a decision. You have to, you have to move ahead. You have a patient in front of you, you have a person who's sick. Uh, they need something, or they don't need something, but it has to be decided, and you have to move ahead. And ultimately, we just have to trust God with the results. And we do what we can. Uh, we try and make the best decisions that we can. We gather the information we can. But ultimately, we have to make a decision and move ahead. Uh, one resource that I wanted to highlight for you is the cbhd.org website. This is our intersections forum, uh, which doesn't mean a whole lot because we're right in the middle of rebuilding our whole website, so it will not look like this in a few weeks. But we will have very prominent, you see in the menu up there, intersections. Intersections is a forum forum uh, that we started in 2016, and it is written directly to pastors and church leaders. That's, that is the audience for the intersections forum. So, at CBHD, we work on academic level, we look at mentoring the next generation, and we look at providing resources for pastors and church leaders. This is a key way that we do that. So you can see some of the recent articles here, an introduction to reproductive technologies, friendship with the body and gender dysphoria. I'm sure none of you are dealing with any of these kind of issues. <laughs> uh, a review of a book called Ethical Approaches to Preaching. Um, and so uh, there's an article every month, and like I said, there's archives going all the way back to 2016 on a whole range of issues. Um, so the intersections forum at cbhd.org. And then if you want to dig deeper, and I hope that you do, into reproductive technologies, we're offering a one-day seminar on Thursday, June 23rd, down at Trinity. So it's 105 miles from here, from where I'm standing, 105 miles. You can do it in about two hours and 20 minutes. Ask me how I know. <laughs> um, reproductive technology issues, we'll, we'll have a physician, Joy Riley, a lovely, lovely person, medical doctor. So she'll go through and describe what are the realities of infertility? What are these various treatments? What do they entail? Why would you pursue this? Why would it be offered? Why would that be offered? And then I don't know if anybody knows Dennis Hollinger. He's the president emeritus of Gordon Conwell. Uh, he's going to talk about the ethical and pastoral dimensions. Because this is one of the tough things about ethics. Like, it's one thing to decide. It's one thing to want to walk someone through, well, this is an ethical thing to do. This is really something you don't want to do. But that has to be presented in a pastoral way. Uh, and Dennis Hollinger uh, is just, you know, he's one of those great, compassionate pastors that's just great to spend time around. Uh, so I know you've all done talks where you're like, if you leave here with only one thing, well, I probably want you to leave here with about 10 things, but two of those 10 are, it's free, <laughs> scholarships available, I don't know, don't need scholarships, it's free. That space is limited. We can do 40. We can have 40 people there. So to register, info at cbhd.org. There's a link. It's too long to remember, so just email info <coughs> at cbhd.org. Tell them you want to go to the pastor's workshop. Um, it's, uh, it's 10 to 4. Uh, lunch is provided. We'll also provide dinner, and then that's the night that our conference starts, so we'll invite you to stay over for the first night of the conference, so we'll make a whole long day of it. Um, we want to be a resource not just for the Evangelical Free Church, so maybe get your Lutheran or Baptist or Methodist friends in town, you guys all make a road trip together, uh, come and see us. Um, yeah, beyond that, I mean, we have our website, we have a weekly email, we have a monthly email, we, you know, we have resources, we want to be a resource for you. Um, but beyond that, let's just transition to ask me anything. And if you don't get your question answered, or if you think of something later, I can easily be reached at matthew at cbhd.org.
So nobody should have to spell my last name to send me an email. <laughs> Too many double letters. Yeah? Earlier on, you had mentioned something about euthanasia not being a big deal in the United States or not important or some term like that. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Why? Yeah. Well, here it really is confined to, to physician-assisted suicide at the moment, whereas uh, in parts of Europe, uh, Belgium, Switzerland, straight-up euthanasia is definitely on the table, uh, kind of unquestioned. I mean, there's a, there are different places that you can actually go in Switzerland to die, and, and they, will, they will kill you. Uh, there's a guy in Australia that builds a pod thing that you can get into, and it's more of an assisted suicide than a euthanasia thing. Um, so yeah, I'm grateful that in the United States we really don't have uh, much of a public policy issue with people wanting to push, well, doctors can just come in and give you a shot and kill you. So is that laws that we have or don't have? Yeah, the laws that we have uh, currently restrict doctors from actively killing you, um, but they've enabled the assisted suicide where they can give you a prescription that you, you have to take on your own. So at least at this point, it's keeping the physicians out of the direct killing business. to see what comes with that. Um, I assume they're going to give us that at the very end of June, which is too bad because our conference starts on June 23rd. <laughs> so it'd be lovely to be able to talk about that at the conference. Um, you know, the predictions are falling every which way. A number of states have already followed suit and passed a, a, a law very similar. Uh, I think one other state has tried the Texas approach as well. So the Texas approach is that uh, if you perform an abortion after a heartbeat is detectable, which is about six weeks, uh, at least the, the proto-heartbeat, so the, the way in which human development occurs. Um, if you perform an abortion or you assist someone in having an abortion after that point, another citizen of Texas can take you to court for, I think it's 10 grand. So very unusual the way the law, the enforcement mechanism is structured. Uh, this law in Mississippi, um, let's see, it passed after the Texas law which is interesting. Um, but it has gone to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, uh, under Roe versus Wade, originally Roe versus Wade laid out a trimester framework, and so nothing was allowable in the first trimester. So I think that's where they're getting the 15 weeks from. So 12 to 15 weeks is the first trimester. Uh, so anything under Roe versus Wade, anything was uh, on the table during that, and then you, you could be more restrictive after that. However, uh, part of Roe and they were actually two opinions that came out on the same day. Part of that was an exception for the health of the mother, and health as broadly as you construe it. So it makes me sad to continue with this pregnancy. That's bad for my health. So that's how we ended up with uh, what, what we often refer to as abortion on demand through all our health. So this Dobbs case in Mississippi is really trying to roll that back to this first trimester. Um, since Roe, the Supreme Court ruled in Casey uh, that restrictions on abortion are allowable if they do not present an undue burden. 
And boy, undue burden is a, <laughs> you know, I think we all in this room have different conceptions of what constitutes an undue burden. Uh, and so those are the sorts of things that the court has tried to sort out through the years. What we've seen is that they have actually allowed increasing restrictions. Um, and so in some states, it is quite restricted. Um, it, it went from being a completely hands-off to, okay, states can, can work here and try and do some good. Um, and I've seen a variety of different things. Uh, I know, I, I'm from Louisiana, so I have friends in Louisiana. There's a law there that um, uh, abortion clinics have to post a sign that describes all of the state benefits that are available to pregnant women and young children. And of course, it spells out the size of the sign, the size of the lettering, and all that, which you want to do. <laughs> um, so that's not considered an undue burden on this right, this so-called right to abortion. So it's really going to be interesting to see because the, the court will have to revisit these frameworks, this undue burden framework, this trimester framework, the health exception framework. That's, that's all up for grabs right now. And it, it's just unknown exactly how that's going to cash out. Um, you know, there are people on the Supreme Court with different with clear differences in philosophy. But even if you group those into two groups, there are some differences among, among the groups. So it's, uh, it's really going to be interesting to see what happens. I do think that we've seen uh, an increasing move on the part of younger and younger people to be generally more pro-life. Um, because I think they're, they, the, we have a much better understanding of the science now. I mean, Roe versus Wade was 1973. I don't think we had ultrasound in 1973. We know a lot more about human development now than we did in 1973. Uh, and that, you know, I think the arguments are definitely being made that that should be taken into account. So uh, I think most of us in the pro-life movement are very help hopeful about this Dobbs case in Mississippi. But, you know, it's the world. Anything can happen. <laughs> Uh, well, the, um, the moral status of the embryo, I mean, and then the one flesh union. So there's a great book uh, called Begotten or Made, written in the early 80s uh, in the UK, Oliver O'Donnell. Um, and the, uh, so the first IVF baby was born in 1978 in England. Uh, first IVF baby in America was 81 or 82. Um, but England in 1983 established the Warnock Committee to try and sort through some of the ethics of what was happening. And in response, or sort of at this, in the same atmosphere, O'Donovan wrote Begotten Remain, really talking about, so he starts with the creed, right? That Jesus Christ was the only begotten of the Father. And uses that to reflect on whether there's something significant to the wording of begotten rather than and whether something like IVF, if that kind of technology begins to move us away from beginning and into making. Um, and you, the book's wonderful. You can get into some deep philosophical waters about techne and, and human making and all that. But it's worth considering, I think. Is it licit? Is it a good idea? Is it wise to make life in the laboratory? 
some of the processes that are involved with uh, egg retrieval, sperm, sperm retrieval, those raise both ethical questions and health questions. The drugs that they have to use for egg retrieval are quite strong. Some women have very, very bad reactions to them. Some women have mildly bad reactions to them, and some women have almost no reactions to them. Um, but they do, they do hold some health consequences. But I, I really would like for us as Christians to, to really consider that, that begotten and made, that one flesh question. Uh, and whether, whether IVF is like cable TV, just something anybody can do, and it has no ethical component, or whether when we're talking about generating new life and the next generation, there's more to be considered as embodied human beings. Um, so I, I think there's a lot, at least to consider that. Now, I, and I fully realize different people are going to cash that out differently. But it, but I think it's significant enough to take the time to, to sort through. Yeah, good question. Yeah. Can I ask another comment? I work in labor and delivery. Oh, course. great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I've seen a, a shift as far as surrogacy mm. in the last 15 years to not just be to a heterosexual couple yeah. that just can't get pregnant, <clears throat> to now most of our surrogates that are coming through are delivering babies or gay or lesbian couples, and a lot of couples are actually flying in from other countries where it's illegal to do surrogacy because of their status. Yeah. So it's it's been interesting to watch, and um, last year we actually had our first transgender come in and have a baby and <laughs> so it's just yeah, yeah. It's, it's very interesting when, when you think oh you're a labor and delivery nurse and it's so wonderful and it's like now we're having to deal with so many of these different issues yeah. that it's just you know you're, you're seeing this person in the bed giving birth to this baby totally looks like a dude yeah. you know and yeah. you're just going I, <laughs> totally wants like, to I just struggle so much and of course because it's my job I can only yeah. Say so much, but yeah, no, uh, we uh, we we get um, information requests, consultation requests every once in a while. Uh, got one. I guess it's been a little while ago now. Uh, physical therapist specializing in pelvic floor issues. Uh, someone who'd undergone the gender reassignment confirmation surgery. So it's kind of one thing. Uh, a lot a lot of those uh, pelvic floor patients. It's some sort of injury, uh, sometimes you know self-inflicted or whatever, um, and and that's enough to deal with. But now, to what degree should I participate in sort of confirming this person's medical decisions that that carry this whole host of other things? Yeah, there's a film. I want to call it a great film, but I won't since I was involved with it. There's a film called Breeders, a subclass of women. Uh, it's available on YouTube, uh, and. It, it, uh, we talk with several different uh, women who served as surrogates, uh, one of whom for a gay couple, and she went to visit the couple after they had taken the baby home, and they were just saying, this baby just cries and cries and cries. She held the baby and stopped crying immediately. I wonder why. <laughs> familiar space, a familiar body to be next to. Um, yeah, I mean, some of the more, one of the more sort of perverse examples of that, there's a Hollywood muckraker named uh, Perez Hilton. He did a photo shoot with the baby that he got through surrogacy. It's, this baby's an accessory. I mean, it's, you know, it's like Architectural Digest, except instead of looking at the house, you're looking at this guy with this baby that he commissioned through surrogacy. Um, 
and that's one of the extreme, I mean, that's an extreme example, but there's an underlying kind of thinking there about the, the bodies of women, the bodies of children, the lives of children, the lives of women, uh, that I think is very dangerous. Yeah, great question. women during the pregnancy and their delivery tend to have more complications. Uh -huh. um, and again, that goes with, you know, is it, is she donating an egg? Is it totally, you know, somebody else's egg and sperm that her body is trying to form, yeah. but it's not genetically hers? Yep. That's almost know, always the, the case. The now. body naturally, like, knows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so those women tend to have more health complications. <clears throat> Yeah, and you even see it in the language, right? So um, they'll talk about a uh, gestational carrier. <laughs> Oof, who wouldn't? I mean, it's like a aircraft carrier, right? G gestational carrier? But it's exactly that situation where it's a donated egg, it's a donated sperm, and for all intents and purposes, it's a donated womb. Uh, and that's really how it's viewed. It's, it's sad and tragic. Well, our time is more than up. I'm happy to... Thanks for listening to the Forest Lakes District EFCA podcast. Before you go, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. By doing so, you're helping others to find and benefit from these resources. To hear more great content like this, please click subscribe. Finally, you can learn more about the FLE and the resources we have available for flourishing churches at our website, forestlakes-efca.org.